I was born in 1983 to first-generation evangelical parents. I grew up in an era of unique experimentation for those first-generation Protestant evangelical Christians. You see, the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the counterculture movements that followed that tumultuous era in American history, it, it created a unique set of questions for evangelicals like my parents who were getting married and having kids by the late 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s. And for them, they had to wrestle with this really difficult question. In a culture that seems to be heading completely against the values we want instilled into our children, how should we respond? Now, I think my parents, all things considered, for the time and era that they were having to raise their kids in, did a pretty good job. But in general, the broader evangelical culture said this, we're gonna separate, we're gonna isolate, we're gonna create our own culture and we're gonna wage war against all the armies of secularism and all the forces that we see as dark, trying to destroy and assimilate our children and our heritage. So in some ways, we tried to separate ourselves, to bunker down into our own tribe, to protect and instill the values in our kids that we think would help them go out when they became adults and to stand up and fight in this culture war. We created our own schools. Now certainly, Catholic schools existed long before this, but there weren't that many evangelical Christian elementary schools or secondary schools before the late 70s or 80s in, the, in America. We created our own music. After all, what would people think if they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? We made our own bookstores, our own television stations, our own movies, our own kids shows. Anybody loved McGee and me? We even made our own science. But we live in an era of history in which through the public schools and the Learning Channel, Discovery Channel, whatever it is, we have secularists who, who are permeating this, this culture with the idea that no geology, billions of years, that, that totally destroys Genesis. No biology, no evolution's true. One kind of animal changed into another. Anthropology, no ape-like creatures turn into people. No, Genesis is definitely not true. Astronomy, no, the Big Bang, the sun came before the earth. The Bible says the earth came before the sun. The Bible got it wrong. That's what they say. Do you realize that's what generations of our kids are being taught? Is it any wonder that we find a problem? Because if they're being taught, you can't trust the first part of the Bible in Genesis, and that's what most of them are being taught. Why will they trust the rest? Now, looking back, so much of this experience was really fun. It was, it was a blast. There's a lot of things I can look back on and laugh. Now, not everybody looks back on their Christ against culture, culture war approach that they experienced in their childhood faith and looks back on it with fond feelings or is able to see any good in it whatsoever. But I look back on it and you know what? There was a lot of good things. It was fun. It was kind of campy and silly. 
Me and my youth group friends, who were also my Christian school friends, going to our Christian music concerts and MXPX and Grandma Train shirts, feeling like we were getting the actual experience that our public school secular friends were getting, but without all the sex, drugs, and side effects. We expressed our radical commitment to Jesus by burning all the secular music CDs we had secretly accumulated over the years. Honestly, it was, it was so much fun if you could come out unjaded. Now here's the problem, though. Most of the time, a lot of that stuff in our Christian subculture just wasn't that good. It wasn't that true, and it wasn't that beautiful, and it carried this massive inferiority complex feeling. And then this whole weird subculture that we are hunkered down into and preparing for war against the secular world out there, it made it really hard when you were told all the time that the pinnacle of the, the, the Christian experience, the chief thing that God made you for in the world was to save the unsaved. And that, that became really hard when in order to un- engage your unsaved friends in a meaningful relationship or go out and witness to them, it meant that either you were going to get exposed to their culture in the process or you had to try to invite them into yours. You had to make them a convert. And we're not talking about an ontological conversion as much as we had to make them a cultural convert. And this culture war stuff, it was really hard on people that weren't in the Christian subculture to try to make sense of how they should even interact with these Christians who seem to maybe only emerge from their bubble in order to use political power to change culture, doing things like picketing concerts and lobbying for video game ratings and censorship of sexual content, we have to be honest that we were the original cancel culture. But here's the deal. I I don't blame those Christians in the previous generation who were navigating very different times as we head as they headed into the the the, the waning years of the, the 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 unbridled optimism of post-war America and and as we headed into a time period in which we were the the, 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 the our own culture war with those Soviet communists the larger American war as that was waning and and as that waned the the larger political powers that be maybe seemed less and less inclined to use religion to bolster the, the American narrative because, after all, we were winning this deal against the atheist Soviet communists. So maybe we don't have to pander to them anymore. I, this, is a, this is a tough time for that previous generation to navigate. So I don't blame them. They were uncharted waters. There were mass media. There was no mass media on this level before like the 1980s and 1990s. And there was a real shift in mainstream culture away from traditional morality that was held by the previous generation, that greatest generation that went and fought against the Nazis and, you know, lived through the, the, the Great Depression. So with all that going on, I can't blame Christians who said, forget this, we just have to protect our children from this garbage that's happening in our culture. 
We fast forward to the mid-2000s, and the LGBT movement is becoming acceptable in the mainstream, and there's a massive cultural shift happening. And it was as if the, the response of Christians who would come out again using the tools of culture war, the only tools we had in our, in our, in our imagination to use, we came out and we protested and we lobbied. It was as it was if we emerged again from our, our tribe to, to cross our, our, our tribal boundaries, to step into the larger culture, only to say, you can't do this, you can't do this. And that's what it felt like to people within the larger American culture. So Christians emerge, we emerge from our cultural cocoon to say, we protest this, we're, we're, we want to legislate and we want to uh, establish a, um, you know, a, a marriage amendment, you know, and I'm not getting into the politics of that. I just want you to think about the cultural and sociological dynamic of that. We emerge from this cocoon and the response of people, especially people who were gay and lesbian, they came and said, um, who are you and what do you care about our culture? Don't you have your own culture? Don't you have your own thing? So it felt like this heavy hand of oppression to people who were in the LGBT community. It just so happened that this mid-2000s, certainly things were stirring in the late 90s, but the, the real cultural collision around this subject that happened in the mid-2000s just so happened to coincide with my generation's movement into adulthood movement into their married years, their child-rearing years, the, the, their years in which they are now interacting because they are forced to, because they are now at the point, unless they work in a church or a Christian culture environment, a Christian institution, they are now in a work world that has them in this multicultural space where they are interacting with people that are secular. They're interacting with people who are New Agers. They're interacting with people who are gay and lesbian and maybe even transgender and now they're getting to know these people and I think that was that was a real watershed moment for my generation and I have to say I think in a lot of ways my generation is still stuck in the culture war mindset we're still stuck even among people who feel like they have left the evangelical roots, they've deconstructed, they've moved into post-evangelicalism or into, you know, a progressive Christian environment, whatever label you want to put on it, they are still locked into the culture war mindset. They've just picked a different team. So in today's episode, I want to offer some thoughts <laughs> and help us navigate the culture war to help us maybe th consider how we may, might be able to transcend the culture war what, and to see what we can even learn from the life and ministry of Jesus who was deeply immersed in a culture war all around him. What we can learn in order to no longer be combatants in an ongoing failed culture war.
First of all, why does the culture war continue? Why do so many of us continue to be sucked in and lured into this ongoing, ongoing culture war, this vying for cultural supremacy? Well, first, it's really hard to escape the culture war loop. The fastest way for you to grow a public following, to become someone who's influential, and to be someone who enjoys some form of cultural acceptance is to say or do something that will make a ping on someone's culture war radar. And whether or not you're trying to do this or not, as soon as you do this, that ping, that, that statement that you make, maybe you post something on social media, you have a conversation with somebody, maybe if you're a, a, a preacher or even, um, you know, you, you, you speak in any way, shape or form in the public sphere and you say something, you do some form of public theology and something you say, I guarantee you, will ping on someone's culture war radar. And the real trap that happens once, once you've made a ping on someone's culture war radar is that you will instantly either ex you will experience both acceptance and rejection. You will experience acceptance from those who are um, vying for cultural supremacy and they find that what you have to say gives them some sort of ammunition for their ideological war. But you will also experience some form of rejection, right? Rejection that just simply comes from saying something that the other cultural tribe uh, thinks is an attack on their ideology and their battle for cultural supremacy. So the real snare that happens is this. You might not even be trying with that Facebook post, that, that tweet, that thing you said in your sermon or the thing you said in your classroom or, you know, whatever the interaction may be, you might not even be trying to intentionally signal some sort of pledge of loyalty to a particular cultural tribe, but that doesn't matter, at least initially, in the culture war, because all the culture war cares about is ammo and allies. And this is where, this is where you have to be really, you have to have a really keen sense of discernment. You have to have gone through some incredibly um, healing and transforming spiritual formation in your life because that acceptance, that initial sense of acceptance on a side is something we deeply long for. It is essential to human nature to long for acceptance, to have a social group that we can bond with. We are social creatures. We are creatures of tribes. And this is not something that we can turn off, but we have to also be acutely aware that when we experience that initial acceptance, there will also be a cost that comes with that. There is a cost that is to be paid, and it is a, it is a painful price for anybody that's serious about the truth. As Christians, we have this Christology, this theology around the person and nature of Jesus Christ. And historically, Christians have affirmed that what Jesus revealed himself to be, that he is the way, the truth, 
and the life. As John 1 says that in the beginning was the Word, and by the Word, you know, he means the Logos, the Christ. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Everything that was made, that has been made, has been made through him. This is New Testament Christology, right? It is by him, for him, through him. So we can affirm not just that Christ says true things, that he has true things to say. We affirm that Jesus is the truth, capital T. He's the singular source as the Son of God, who through him all things have been made, which include all truth and goodness and beauty. And those of you that have been following this podcast for a long time, going through the Christ and Culture series, you know this core affirmation that I believe is essential to Christian theology. And it's, it's something that maybe we didn't learn, those of us that grew up in the culture war. There is this deep, deep theological truth that Christ works as the truth within culture. There is no cultureless experience of the truth. There is no, Jesus steps in and his incarnation is, he is incarnate, incarnate. the Son of God is incarnate in a Jewish man, in a Jewish context, surrounded by a larger Hellenistic Greco-Roman context with language and social cues and, and, and style and music and art. He lives within a cultural context with a language. And so we come to know Jesus not just as a, as a disembodied idea, but as an embodied person. And the only way we know him is through our own vehicles of culture, right? We interact in our time and place using our language. I don't, when I sit down, I, I actually, I, I can't read in Greek. You know, I can sit down with a, um, I, can, I can sit down with a, a lexicon and a concordance and, 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 and use those tools to help me understand the Greek, but I don't read in Greek. I read my Bible in English, probably like most of you do as well. Um, kudos to those of you that are fluent in, in Greek and, and Hebrew and the biblical languages. I confess I am not. I, I leave that to someone else's area of, of expertise. But even if I were to read in Greek, I would acknowledge that Greek, the reason why I'm, the Bible is written in Greek is because Alexander the Great spread Greek culture from Macedonia all the way through to India and into uh, Afghanistan. And that's why the Greek language was the language that even these, these, these Jewish people, like Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, he was writing his letters in, and that's the language that we have today. So we are stepping in even to God's story through culture. So this is really crucial. This affirmation is crucial because it allows us to affirm that the possibility of the truth, Christ as the truth, is working in cultural tribes to reveal himself. And yet, here are these twin truths about the imminence and transcendence of God. Because the truth is ultimately transcendent, because Christ is transcendent, the truth is not bound to the limited frame of each cultural tribe. So we can affirm that the truth is at work within that culture. There are there's degrees of harmony that, that each culture on the planet 
has with the truth. And maybe some cultures have higher degrees of harmony with the truth than others. That's a discussion for another time. The point of this affirmation is to simply say, yes, the truth is working in these cultural tribes, and yet it transcends those tribes, and it is not limited to the, to the frame of that cultural tribe. The implications of this are really, really profound for those of us who are very, very tired of the culture war, and for those that should be tired of the culture war. The implications of this, this Christological affirmation, this theology about the person nature of Christ, and, and the ontology of truth, goodness, and beauty are so profound and so necessary for us to understand and be able to navigate the culture war. But before we do that, let's actually see how the person of Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who, who operated in a particular cultural context, how he navigated the culture war of his day. Culture wars are nothing new. We can go back 2,000 years to the cultural context that Jesus was born into and and find a culture war that might even be more intense than what we're experiencing today. I think in a lot of ways, social media heightens our, uh, our, our awareness of the culture war. It probably even turns it up quite a few notches. <laughs> There's no, no denying that. I saw some really, really uh, disturbing statistic this past week um, there has been a uh, study over the past three year, past three years. Let's see this. Yeah, this goes back to to 2017. A study done by several um, polling groups: YouGov, Voter Study Group, Nationscape. So the source on this is political. The, uh, this this chart you can see on my Twitter uh, page from um, uh, Clark Patterson works for Politico. Over the past three years, surveys have been done, conducted by YouGov, Voter Study Group, and Nationscape with uh, respondents asked a question about how open they are to using uh, violence to advance their political goals. The options included never, uh, a little, uh, a moderate amount, a lot, and a great deal. And what we've seen over the past three years is respondents have moved from saying um, that they have at least some degree of openness to using political violence. Only 8% of people said yes to that in 2017. Only 8% of people. So that means 92% of people said uh, never, right? I, it's never justifiable to use violence to establish your political aims and goals. 92% of people in America said, nope, never, right? Never acceptable. In just this past September of 20, uh, 2020, that number grew among Democrats and Republicans to 33% among Democrats and 36% among Republicans. Now, the uh, margin of error could be 1.5 to 3 percentage points on this poll. So this isn't about, boy, Democrats are 3% less likely to, that's not, that's not the point. Get out of the culture war frame here. There's a larger concern that we should have that in the course of three years, 
we have gone from having 92% of people saying, you know what, it's never justified, never justifiable for you to use violence to advance your political goals, to now in 2020, approximately, let's say we just round, you know, maybe to the average there, say 35% of people think it's acceptable. We have, so that would mean now instead of 98%, only 65% of people say it is never acceptable. That is a huge, huge shift. And I cannot deny the effects of social media likely exasperating that problem. So yes, we are in a, a culture war era that is very intense. I don't want to downplay that. But if we go back 2,000 years all right, to the cultural context Jesus was born in, we're going to find an arguably even more intense environment. Jewish people like Jesus, Jesus was Jewish, were under Roman occupation. They had been passed down as the property of varying empires for over 500 years. 500 years under differing empires' occupation, essentially being passed around like the spoils of war. And the culture war in this time in which Jesus was born into, was on the verge of erupting into full-on violent revolution. And spoiler alert, about 30 or 40 years after Jesus dies, around, around 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, it does erupt into a full-on, not just culture war with tense, you know, Twitter exchanges. <laughs> this is actually a full-on violent revolution that ends with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Romans come in and sack the city and, and disperse the Jewish people out of, of the city. It's a, it's a terrible time, but this is the stuff that's brewing in Jesus's day. And so I think there's so much we can learn. If we're serious about pursuing Jesus, we're serious about the truth, uh, there's so much we can learn from stepping into Jesus's cultural context. If we want to avoid the results that we saw one generation after Jesus' death and resurrection. So who are some of the main players in this this culture war in Jesus' day? All right, well, you've got the Sadducees. And and the Sadducees, they learned to play this political game very, very well. They knew how to play it with their overlords. They're essentially the family that struck a deal after the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt happened a few centuries before Jesus was born. If you're not familiar with that, just just wiki, you know, wiki the Maccabean Revolution, Maccabean Revolt. That was probably the first known um, religious revolution or war over religion. Well, pretty exclusively, although, you know, religion is never just an exclusive domain. There's always politics and everything else involved. But that was one of the first, if not the first religious war in history in which Judah Maccabee, Judah the Hammer, and the Maccabees revolted uh, a group of Jews that were quite serious about, um, <laughs> about the uh, institutions that were being placed on them, demanding the, the worship of Zeus and the worship of Zeus even in the, uh, the, Jewish, the Jewish temple. It wasn't Herod's temple, but there was kind of an intermediary temple in Jerusalem at that time. And the Sadducees were the ones, so the, the Maccabean revolt, you know, I don't want to lay out the whole history of it, but the Jewish people were temporary success, temporarily ex, um, successful in a brief expulsion of their, o- their overlords at that time. 
and their their overlords were the Greek Seleucids, Antiochus, the the the, the great Antiochus, uh, claiming to be the very manifestation, the uh, very the very icon of God in the flesh, and so they were successful temporary in expelling the the Seleucid Greeks, kicking them out temporarily, cleansing the temple. That's the festival of Hanukkah, and. Um, but it didn't take long. <laughs> it didn't take long for for this temporary success to to not pan out in their in their favor, as you probably very likely can understand. Um, and it, so it was the Sadducees that 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 ended up striking a deal with um, eventually what would be the Roman occupants, so that Seleucid Empire doesn't last very long. The Romans end up becoming the occupying force. In the land, and it was the Sadducees that ended up striking a deal to maintain their political power. So they could have power as long as the power was granted to them by the Romans. The Pharisees, that was another group. You guys are that have, you know, Sunday school, even Sunday school level experience with the Bible are probably familiar with these terms. The Pharisees were a different group. So the Sadducees, they play the political game, they have cozied up with the overlords. They do what they can to maintain power, to maintain, think from their own perspective, well, at least, we, at least we're not, you know, being eradicated by the Romans. At least we have some semblance of our culture left. The Sadducees were much more open to like the Greek ways of thinking. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were the opposites. So, you know, you can kind of think of Pharisees and Sadducees and you know, the tension between them, similar to what we might experience today between Democrats and Republicans. Pharisees have a totally different way of seeing the world. They saw themselves as these conservative bastions of the true Jewish religion and culture. And they, they did not like the increasing influence of the Greco-Roman worldview in their culture. So the way that they signaled that disdain was by acting separate from the larger cultural influence. The very name Pharisee means one who is separated. So those are, those are a couple of cultural tribes in Jesus's day and age, but those aren't it. You know, we, we, it's not just two teams here. There are multiple, there are layers of competing influence. It's not just the Romans and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There's another group. There's a group that thinks that the Pharisees aren't taking the separation from culture far enough. They're the Essenes. The Essenes thought that the way that they should preserve what they see as true and essential to their culture and the true religion that God had given the Jewish people, they saw the way to do that was by separating themselves even further from what the Pharisees were doing. They did things like practice voluntary poverty and asceticism. And, and they were probably even the community that John the Baptist would have been a part of in the wilderness. Uh, most historians think that it was an Essene community that um, compiled the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, where we've, we found those, the historic, you know, historic is an understatement, one of the great finds in archaeology in not just the 20th century, but probably in the last thousand years. It was maybe the Essene community that did that. So they separated themselves. There were communities of Essenes that lived in the wilderness, probably like John the Baptist. But what if that wasn't the way 
to actually produce real change. Maybe the separation wasn't good enough. That's where the zealots come in. And the zealots are like, hey, you know, Essenes, how great of you to think that, you know, we need to be very, very separate from the Roman way, the Greco-Roman worldview, but we're, we just don't think your voluntary poverty, they were, you know, the Essenes were possibly um, even pacifists. We, you know, we can't say this for, for certain, but it's very likely that they were. The zealots were like, cute ideas, guys, but the only way we're actually getting rid of these Roman overlords is by doing it at any and all costs, which includes violent tactics. The zealots were known for doing things like violent assassinations, ha- uh, hiding daggers in their cloaks and, 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 and stabbing, um, you know, Roman, let's say Roman uh, legionaries and people that they thought were um, on the side of the, the Roman overlords. They, they were known for this stuff, for conspiring to incite radical revolution. They were sympathetic to the Pharisees and the Essenes, but dis- would have disdained people like Sadducees and tax collectors. So in the midst of all this tension, Jesus begins his public ministry. You can see, hopefully, you know, many of you might be familiar with what each of these groups were, but I want you just to step in and, and feel what that tension is like in Jesus's day. You really have a lot of the things we might see today, whether it's tensions between Antifa and Proud Boys and both groups, maybe open and to using violence, and you're wondering whether or not that's spreading to the larger culture. But, you know, even with all that, you almost still have to imagine, you know, the sort of proud, boy, proud Boys versus Antifa dynamic. But yet within that, you could kind of imagine, if you could imagine those tensions, the tensions between Democrats and Republicans, maskers and anti-maskers and all of that stuff. And you throw in the fact that on top of all of that, like, let's say the Chinese government. Uh, was our actual government and that our American government were simply a puppet government of Chinese overlords, that would, imagine how much more tense that dynamic would make it. And that gives you a taste of the culture war tension as Jesus begins his ministry. In the midst of this historic culture war tension, Jesus begins his ministry. And right away, people are shocked. They're amazed. They perhaps see him saying and doing things that they interpret as as signaling to their culture war tribe. Mark 122 says people marveled at his teaching. And you can see that much of what he has to say and do starts making pings on the different culture war radars. Each of these groups wondering, is this revolutionary rabbi, is he on our side? So think of how Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. You know, this is a practice that's almost exclusive to the Essenes at this time. Maybe Jesus is on team Essene. Nope. (laughs) While Jesus does go through with the practice of fasting for a period of time in the wilderness, something that would have been Essene-like. 
he's also known for eating and drinking at parties with sinners. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Certainly not something an Essene would do. Matthew eleven eighteen through 19 uh, shares this really interesting interaction Jesus has with the Pharisees. And, you know, I think they're trying to figure out, hey, you know, what, what team is this guy on? And it says this in, in Matthew eleven eighteen 18 and 19, for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. So, right, you see it right there. The accusation against John the Baptist, right? He doesn't, he doesn't party. He doesn't eat or drink. Doesn't mean he doesn't literally eat or ever drink anything. But they mean partying. He's not out, you know, uh, f- having feasts. He's not eating, drinking. And the, the accusation that the religious leaders had, the Pharisees had against him was, oh, this John has a demon. But now they come against the Son of Man, Jesus, who eats and drinks and hangs out with uh, tax collectors and sinners, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard. So clearly, he's not in Team Essene. He's also uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're trying to figure out, is he on our side? But it's clear he's not. They're very fascinated by what Jesus has to say. But it's clear, you know, very, very clear that he's not on their team either. So just look at Matthew 23, Mark 12, you know, just read those chapters. You can see some those interactions between Jesus and the Pharisees and Sadducees. So maybe then he's a zealot, right? You know, after all, he's got a zealot on his innermost circle of friends. So you can see Luke 6, 13 through 15 for the, the scene which Jesus calls Simon who's a zealot to his team. So, you know, maybe he's signaled to team zealot. Maybe that's what Simon's thinking, right? Sorry, there's, <laughs> there's no chance he's on team zealot either because after all, he's out here preaching that people should love their enemies and bless those who curse them. You can see that in Matthew 5, just as one example. And that, that doesn't jive with the zealot way. And neither would having a Jewish tax collector you know, someone who swindles his own people while working for the Roman overlords, having him in your innermost, innermost circle of friends, like we see in Matthew 9.9, which Jesus is calling him Matthew, that's not going to play well with the zealots either. Doesn't he have a team? Which cultural team, which cultural tribe is Jesus on? Each one of these groups are like, hey, we see some things that, that, that are like, yeah, we believe this stuff. We believe these things this guy's saying. Is he on our team? And in each case, the answer is no. Because Christ is the transcendent truth. So it should come as no surprise that he would not fit within the limited bounds and broken agendas of any of these cultural tribes. He's the king of a transcendent kingdom with an ultimate rule and reign that supersedes any tribe, nation, or empire. And his claim to be this kind of king of a transcendent kingdom, it didn't sit well with people and they realized he couldn't be co-opted into subservience under their tribal culture war agendas. And this is the real danger that's going to happen. If you guys are serious and I think you want to follow the way of Jesus and you're serious about 
the truth and you see the failures of the culture war, there's a, I got sobering news for you here. When disparate tribes, when tribes that don't normally get along realize there's a shared threat to whatever tiny parcel of power they control, they coalesce together and they try to eliminate that shared threat. It's a very interesting, weird phenomenon. It's like, what in the world would cause someone like FDR, you know, this is just an example, like a larger analogy, what would cause someone like FDR and the Americans to ever partner up with Joseph Stalin and the Soviets? It's a Hitler, because Hitler was a shared threat to each one of those cultures. So it's amazing how these sides can coalesce together in any, on an even much smaller scale when there is a perceived threat that could eliminate whatever parcel of power any group has. They'll band together temporarily to figure that thing out. So suddenly, you see this in Jesus' day, suddenly Rome, the Pharisees, you got the Sadducees, and, and even the once adoring crowds who are chanting, you know, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're cheering this guy on and this Jesus on as he enters into Jerusalem. And they're thinking, maybe this is the guy. All of these groups and teams, all of the sudden, when they realize he is not on any of their team, he is not going to bow his knee to any of these tribes. He is not subservient to their agendas. When they realize that, they all suddenly start agreeing on something. This guy's got to die. Pilate even asks, in the face of Christ, what is truth? Even Christ's closest friends, that inner circle of friends, even they disavowed any knowledge of him. And it makes you think you could go down the line and just start to wonder, man, these guys probably, each one of them maybe started to follow Jesus, thinking that Jesus was a way to affirm their rightness in the world. Simon and Matthew, maybe even Peter, Judas, obviously. And when that realization hits them, when they realize, yeah, he, he's not the means to our end, even Jesus' closest friends, save for John the Beloved, they disavow any knowledge of him and go into hiding. Those of you that are really serious about pursuing the truth, and I think if you're listening to this, I think you're serious about it, you got to brace yourself for similar results. Because the real danger lies not in being rejected by the crowds, but in the initial acceptance of the crowds. With that initial acceptance, you know, the, the sermon that everyone patted you on the back over, the social media posts that got a million likes, the thousands of books you might have sold, the many who showed up at your political rally. Each one of those scenarios, you can easily be ensnared by culture warriors who are ready to promote anyone they see as competent in advancing their cause. Remember, within those cultural tribes, it's okay. You know, the truth is present and at work. So you shouldn't be off-put by the possibility of being accepted and having your, ex your ideas and what you have to say as you attempt to bear witness to the truth, making people go, yes, I agree with that, all right? But the real danger, the real danger is in that acceptance 
Because if you don't know the truth, if you don't realize the truth is both imminent and transcendent, there's a real possibility that your pursuit of the truth becomes co-opted by a political agenda, an ideological agenda, and now it is no longer the truth because it is bounded and stuck within an imminent frame. There's no cultureless apprehension of the truth. I, we affirm this. Christ is present everywhere and working in every tribe, so we're not demonizing others. We don't need to do that. We just need to affirm that Christ is not confined. The truth transcends. What this means for you is that when, if and when you do succumb, and we all probably do at some point in our life, we succumb to the social pressures of the culture war. When we're, we're told there's a line in the sand and we have to choose between being a Democrat or a Republican, you have to choose between whether or not you believe that black lives matter or blue lives matter, or you have to choose between you can either be a Marxist communist or a capitalist, and we commit ourselves to one of those tribes, we will ultimately close ourselves down to the truth that is presently at work within the opposing tribe. When I was a young Republican, I used to think that all Democrats hated babies, right? That they wanted to kill babies and that they were all baby murderers. It was very hard for me to listen to somebody that identified as a Democrat until I was forced to, you know, until I got close to some, some people and it wasn't until I was already close to them, I, they revealed that they had democratic inclinations and I was so shocked because they didn't seem like satanic baby eaters, you know, they just felt like these particular um, policies that they found in that party platform, they actually really, really were concerned about uh, people that were poor and thought the social safety net programs of uh, an FDR sort of democratic progressive platform were a better way to make sure that those people who are really, really poor didn't die in poverty or, uh, you know, single mothers wouldn't be forced to, you know, have to work six jobs in order just to, you know, be able to put food on the table or to provide health care for their kids. And when I took time to listen to them, I could actually go and be like, hey, all right, well, I, I can see even if I acknowledge that, and I, I still do in a lot of ways, I, those, the, the means by which uh, that, that particular platform seeks to perhaps care for the poor, I might not still fully agree with, but I can see the truth at work in that opposing tribe. And then as I became more open to the truth that transcends my tribe, boy, I started to realize as a young Republican, there were a lot of things that I was holding to that looked a lot more like the, uh, the, the extreme, you know, social Darwinist capitalist Ayn Rand's philosophy than it looked like to the way of Jesus. But it had been a blind spot for me. Because I didn't see the truth as transcendent to my tribe. I, in much of my culture, right, when I was younger in this, you know, evangelical Republican world, thought that, you know what, the truth, the truth has an exclusive contract with our political party. And you know what? I've realized I was wrong. What I didn't do and what I would encourage you also not to do, I mean, ultimately, you, you have to maybe decide on 
particular um, political expressions that you think, man, this has more harmony with the, the truth and the way of Jesus in the world. You, you might have to make those decisions and you should vote a particular way, but I also don't want you to make the mistake, as I've seen many people do in my generation, is they go, oh man, we realized there was a bunch of things that weren't really good in the Republican Party, and now we're just, we're just going to jump teams and do the culture war from that side. And, you know, if that's your takeaway from all of this, it's just to be like, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm leaving being an evangelical Republican for a post-evangelical Democrat, then I, you're missing the point entirely. In fact, I'd say you're going against the entire point of this, <laughs> this whole episode is to say, that isn't a better way. Now, I, I'm not to say, you know what, that this, this is very difficult and nuanced conversation when we start to think about the political implications, when we really try to have our politics be downstream of our theology and translate, you know, the, the way of Jesus and our access to the records of the way of Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago in that culture war, in that context, and we try to figure out how do we do this in this political sphere? There's going to be difference of opinion. I'm not saying there's a, there isn't any truth, right? I'm not saying, well, the truth is relative. I'm just acknowledging how hard it is and how difficult it is. And I'm also acknowledging that really intelligent, really earnest people might go and be like, hey, I might see more truth in one side or the other, or maybe even just leaving the two-party system altogether, and I'm going to become a libertarian, or I'm going to, I am going to vote the Green Party. You know, the point is, is that I would encourage you to not give your allegiance to any of those teams. Maybe you do see a particular political platform. You go, well, you know, I got to vote a particular way, and I see more harmony with the truth in this way. That's the decision we all have to make. The thing that's killing us, that is so far, the thing that's actually killing us spiritually and may actually lead to really killing us, and I shouldn't laugh about that, is that, is that we can't actually see the truth beyond our tribe. And this is the real danger. Now, now I, for one, I, I might prefer it, which I do. I would prefer to live in a capitalist economic system over a Marxist communist state. That's my preference. I would see maybe more of a degree of harmony with the value of the individual and the rejection of violence. And I'm not talking about like a crony capitalist economic system, but I, I would personally prefer to live in a small c capital system, you know. And one in which people can make voluntary contracts without threat or fear in which they can actually own the products of their time and things like that. I, I would prefer that. But I also, I don't make the mistake in believing that Jesus was a capitalist. If I do that, that makes the transcendent truth subservient to a bounded ideological frame. Now, again, I might go, hey, I might see a higher degree of truth in this particular framework in this economic framework, but I don't ever make the mistake in saying Jesus was a capitalist, or Jesus was a Republican, or Jesus was a Democrat. That's not, I can't do that if I am actually affirming 
these biblical Christological claims, these theological commitments, because that makes the truth only imminent and not transcendent. That means there is something, an ideological frame, that transcends the truth. And by its very definition, that can't be the truth. The truth transcends. So even as I share this, I know some of you might say, well, hey, this guy must really be a socialist or a communist if he thinks that capitalism might be wrong. If I'm open to the truth that transcends team capitalism and to the truth's capacity to bring about something better than capitalism, my allegiance isn't to capitalism. Do you see that? I get some of you might go, hey, this this guy must secretly be a communist. No, this is how the culture war has distorted your thinking. It's buried your pursuit, truth, beneath these tribal agendas. Pursuing the truth gets you in trouble. This tribal programming, it it runs really deep within us because we need community. We need social bonding and, and we need shared values. We need a shared narrative that makes for trusting relationships. If we don't have some sort of shared guiding story and community, You can't have trusting relationships because you don't have shared values. Without that minimal, without some minimal threshold of shared value, without a minimal threshold of shared belief, social groups can't even form, let alone last for any period of time. But this is how the culture war creates this distorted perversion of the kind of community we really need and long for. Culture war tribes form bonds around common enemies. They unite around what they fear and hate, and they are more interested in self-preservation than the truth. If Christ is the truth, and I believe he is, then we must see how fearful self-preservation is at odds with the truth. The hope for those serious about the truth isn't found in that immediate social acceptance. It's not found in the social acceptance we might receive in the here and now. It's not in being an influencer. It's not in selling books. It's not in growing big churches. It's not in any of that stuff. The hope for those serious about the way of Jesus and the truth is the hope in the resurrection and in God's final setting right of all things. Even if we are rejected on all sides, we are pressed, but not crushed. We are persecuted, not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9. We partner with God, and we look forward to a city whose maker and builder is God. The way of the cross is the way of truth. And it calls for temporary rejection of influence and status. It accepts the trade of mass acceptance in the here and now for the possibility of maybe even being killed between a couple of thieves. But eventually that ground will start to quake. The skies will darken. And maybe even some onlookers might start to have a wake-up call, like that Roman centurion standing near the cross in Matthew 27. But even that vindication, even that vindication won't be enough for the truth. 
It's not until the grave is finally conquered and all things are made new that we'll see the victory of the Lamb who was slain. That glorious apocalypse. The apocalypse means the unveiling, and we look forward to the unveiling of the truth. So let me encourage you, trade in your desires for influence for the small mustard seed journey of truth in the kingdom of God. Reject the culture war and pursue genuine, real community with others who are pursuing the truth, which will mean that you live in the tension of different perceptions of the truth. You will live in the tension of disagreement, but in your shared desire for the truth, this is where genuine Christian community should form. It should be shaped around the Eucharist. This is why that was the centerpiece of Christian worship for 1,700 years. It was in the reminder that the way of the cross is the way of truth. It is the way of temporary rejection. It is the way of temporary self-sacrifice in hopes of an eternal glory in the final setting right of everything, in the unveiling of the truth. Yeah, friends, I, I don't I don't have it all together. Um, I don't have the full comprehension of the truth, but I'm just so honored and excited that you listen in and that I think, like me, like you, we are open to that transcendent truth, shaping and constantly reshaping, reforming us, refining us, transforming us, sanctifying us. All of those things, we're on this journey, and I am so thankful that you guys are on this journey too. I want to invite you, you can reach out and connect with me. I know this isn't the same thing as real in-person, face-to-face community, but it's so cool that many of you listen in from all over the country and all over the world. And in some small part, I'd like to connect with you. So you can reach out to me on Twitter. You can also, if you feel like supporting the work of this podcast, You can also connect on Patreon over there. My goal is to offer free theological and philosophical education to anybody with an internet connection to not just do podcasts like this, which might be speaking to cultural moment issues and helping us navigate that, but also doing things like going through the the historic problem of evil like we've been doing over the past year and trying to figure out how Christians have thought about that issue, tried to remedy the issue, to try to bring up a a way of navigating one of the most difficult theological and philosophical issues in human history. And in order to have just high-level, encouraging, nuanced conversations with people all across the denominational spectrum, the theological spectrum, like in the last, boy, in the last year, I just look back and see, think about all the, the fantastic people that uh, I've got to have conversations with all across the denominational spectrum and people like Dr. Russell Moore, who's a Southern Baptist Convention theologian, and Bruxy Cavey, an Anabaptist preacher, and, you know, guys like John Mark McMillan and Andy Squires, who grew up in charismatic contexts, are now making art that transcends those boundaries. And it's just so cool. Gosh, liberation theologians, black liberation theologians like 
Dr. Dwight Hopkins and boy, even even reformed thinkers like my good friend Paul Vanderclay. So having these sorts of conversations has been so fun for me and I know that so many people have gotten so much out of them and it's not possible without the help of those that have been supporting on Patreon. So an extra special thanks to those in the Theology 201 level of support. People like Tim K, Taylor S, Stephen M, Sean C, Sarah R, Sam and Nicole, Paul R, Paul S, Michael H, Luke H, Justin T, Josie, Eli C, Carolyn, BJ, thank you all for your support. If you want to become a member of the Detox Patreon community and support the work I'm doing, you also get access to things like bonus Q&A episodes. I try to you know, treat it like almost like an online classroom where we can have forum discussions. Uh, I post charts and articles and all sorts of other things over there. So you can find out more in the link that, um, provided below. And that's a great place to reach out if you have differences of opinion. I want to hear if you've got a different perspective than me on this subject or anything else covered in this podcast. You can reach out to me on Twitter as well, as I've already mentioned. You can tell me the things that you agreed with, you disagreed with, all of that stuff. I just I, I look forward to connecting with each of you. So thanks for doing that. And finally, if you would, it goes a long ways if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts, leave a review on any podcast place that you might be accessing this, but especially Apple Podcasts. It's the number one place people are going and finding podcasts still. And until that changes, that's probably the best place I could ask you to leave a uh, review and a rating. So thanks. Thanks for doing that. Um, you know, some more fun things coming up, working on some getting getting some additional guests uh, over the next couple of months. We've got some bonus Q&A episodes coming up on Patreon, heading back into the Problem of Evil series. The research on that is just extra lengthy. So um, we, I'm working on all of those things. So until next time, we'll talk again soon.